Welcome to our podcast on biodiversity and how it fits into the world of sustainable investment and ESG. My name is Julia Newbold and I'm Managing Editor at Connexus Financial. Today, my guest on the Market Narratives podcast is Therese Nicholson, Head of Sustainable Investment at Newton Investment Management. Therese is responsible for the strategic vision and delivery of sustainability across the wider investment platform at Newton. This includes working with the investment teams to ensure that ESG matters are fully integrated into the fundamental investment philosophy, as well as continuous innovation around sustainability solutions. In her role, Therese is a member of the Newton Executive Committee and is chair of the Newton Investment Management Sustainability Committee. Therese started her career as an ESG analyst before joining Threadneedle Asset Management as Head of Governance and Responsible Investment in 2007. In 2011, Therese joined 91, formerly Investec Asset Management, where she spent over a decade developing its sustainability investment platform. She joined the Newton team in 2022. There are 17 people in her team, and it focuses on stewardship, research and data in relation to ESG. Newton is a global investment firm with $175 billion in assets under management. It takes an active, engaged and multi-dimensional approach to investing, of which ESG is a key component and has been for many decades. Believes its purpose is to deliver on the client's investment goals while also fostering a vibrant and healthy world for all. And it has a wide range of sustainable investment strategies to help clients with that objective. Thank you so much for joining me today, Therese. Thank you, Julia. It's great to be here with you. Therese, biodiversity is becoming a hot topic within the sustainable investing universe. Can you explain simply for our listeners today the concept of biodiversity and how it can be turned into something tangible for investment teams? How does biodiversity matter to those teams? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what's important is to try and break all of this down a little bit because biodiversity is a really big topic and it's thrown around a lot as a term. And I think uh, unless you break it down, it's sort of hard to contextualize things, particularly as it relates to investment. So if we start by just defining the term biodiversity, it basically means the variety of life on Earth in all forms from genes and bacteria to entire ecosystems, such as forests and and oceans. And it's basically the result of uh, 4.5 billion years of evolution. And it's really important because we depend on it for so much. We depend on it for food, for water, medicine, a stable climate, and and economic growth uh, amongst many uh, others. The oceans are really important, for example, in absorbing carbon emissions. And more than 1 billion people actually rely on forests for their livelihoods. So 70 to 95% of the developing world rely on medical plants for uh, primary care, uh, which is really quite um, uh, sort of staggering. So overall, it's actually estimated that over half of global GDP is dependent on nature in one way or another. That's 44 trillion US dollars. So and i think it's 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 a nice way to a nice way to think about it is that sort of connects the e in the esg to the s by connecting the role of natural capital in feeding clothing and treating and housing the global population essentially 
And the reason that it's you know such a big topic now is that nature is in crisis and has been in crisis for a while. Up to one million species are threatened with extinction, many within decades. The Dasgupta review that was carried out by the UK government refers to a 40% loss in natural capital per capita from 1992 to 2014. And 85% of wetlands, such as salt marshes and mangrove swamps, which absorb a large amount of carbon, have basically disappeared. So that's why it's it's increasingly such a big topic, not just for investors, but also for for governments um, around the world. And I've seen somewhere uh, reports that suggest that we need up to one trillion US dollars in investments per annum to protect and conserve biodiversity. And we're just financing about 10% of that need at the moment. And this is where finance comes in and why it's so important, right? So if we look at it closer from just the investment perspective, I mean, it matters to us as, as investors, both from an integration perspective where we consider ESG issues in terms of trying to make good risk-adjusted returns, as well as also from a sustainable investment uh, uh, perspective. Biodiversity is, of course, about natural ecosystems and services, and the companies we invest in rely on these, but they also have impacts on them. So you can take farmers that depend on free pollination services, and then industries that create negative externalities in the form of pollution, which obviously have a negative impact on, on ecosystems. And the way that we break it down uh, or try to think about it is to apply the intergovernmental science policy platform on biodiversity and ecosystems, a, r- a real handful there, but basically the IPBES. It's a useful way to think about understanding the drivers of species lost and using that as a way to understand it through the lens of, of investments. So these are changes in land and sea use, as one example, uh, direct exploitations of organisms, uh, climate change, pollution and invasive species. So those are sort of the five main areas. And we can connect those to then issues that in turn are relevant for a number of different sectors. So to just illustrate, take pollution, for example, where we have plastics, which obviously relates to the food sector, the chemical sector, paper and packaging. So this is one way to just look at it through a couple of lenses that connects to issues that we understand as uh, in in our industry, and then in turn connected uh, into different um, industries. So that's where we are at the moment, and it's something we're applying both from an integration perspective as well as sustainable investment. So, in terms of sustainable investments, how does biodiversity fit when you're trying to save something, and what's Newton's thinking on protecting heritage sites, etc., around the world? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So in terms of sustainable investments, I mean, I think we're still at fairly early stages in terms of um, understanding how best to build dedicated products, if you like, that try and maximize the contribution to dealing with biodiversity. Um, the framework that we use for sustainable investments in general at Newton is one whereby we think it's one of three things. It's either a solution provider, and through the lens of biodiversity, these are um, uh, companies that are providing structural growth from providing solutions to environmental or social uh, challenges. 
the second area is balanced stakeholders. That's really sort of best in class type type of businesses where um, we again look for companies that are managing their social and environmental factors to to generate sustainable returns, and then transition stocks. These are companies that are going from uh, brown to green, so companies that are improving their footprints. And we think we're able to identify stocks under each three of those pillars that link to biodiversity. At the moment, the the easiest areas to identify this stock is definitely the best in class type of areas. There isn't yet that many solution providers um, working sort of exclusively towards or focusing on uh, biodiversity, but we expect this to grow in the future. Obviously, the transition space is really important. And what I find fascinating speaking to, you know, colleagues and, and friends in the industry that work with conservation, for example, they are really emphasizing the importance of investors getting involved with companies and industries that aren't green today um, for the purpose of dealing with biodiversity. And then your second part of the question was in relation to uh, heritage sites. I mean, this is obviously a really important uh, sort of way to understand protected areas around the world. UNESCO has been uh, allocating this, this this type of status to various regions around the world. Natural world heritage sites is obviously what we are particularly interested in. And there, the sectors of oil and gas, mining and hydro dams are the ones that are the most critical. So what we look for uh, with companies is, is their commitment around, well, basically no-go commitments, um, which is what UNESCO is encouraging companies to disclose around. For a long time, this wasn't a very transparent data point by many companies. But working with UNESCO and and other sort of NGOs and, and groups, uh, we have been able to, I think, shed more lights on this um, and encourage companies to be clearer about what their policies are in relation to these areas and whether they do have no-go commitments uh, around these sites. So how is Newton positioned in terms of advocacy and engagement in the area? And, and what's changed in recent years that's helped raise this awareness with Newton and with other companies as well, I guess? Yeah, so, um, you know, advocacy and engagement is a really important component um, for us as a business and for, for my team as well. It, it encompasses both focus on engaging directly with, with companies around um, how they are managing, uh, you know, sort of their, their biodiversity um, issues or, or the externalities that they create, but also try and partner and work closer uh, with different groups in the market. Obviously, the conservation NGOs have over the last couple of years, I think, been really good at trying to help the investment community with information and data. WWF, for example, have done great work in trying to get data into the market so that we can understand the overlap uh, between protected and sensitive areas to our investments. And then, you know, I mentioned UNESCO already. And then there are investor groups such as TNFD, et cetera, which are obviously trying to put standards and frameworks in the market for us to try and um, uh, sort of uh, interpret, if 
you like, the, the way to think about biodiversity. Uh, and we try and contribute to, to all of these as much as we can. I think being in the room and, and um, you know, uh, influencing or, or, or putting your opinion forward is really important. Something we've been trying to advocate for a lot is ensuring that um, – you know, we don't just allocate to the to the best companies in the market or to solution providers, for example, but this aspect of investing into emerging markets, taking on some of the risk and actually trying to engage hard with the companies is, is something that um, we, we have constantly sort of um, raised in, in the room. And I think something that a lot of investors sort of agree on um, today. And Therese, now that you've mentioned, you know, going into emerging markets, I guess in some of those areas, you need to engage with governments to affect policies and regions on how they're managed and regulated. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, engaging with with governments and sovereign is, um, you know, by no means an an easy thing. You, you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years is that governments themselves are obviously um, putting forward more stringent policies uh, around this. You know, as you would expect, maybe in Europe, the the EU twenty thirty biodiversity strategy, I think, has been really important in uh, achieving, for example, an EU wide ban on importation of deforestation-linked commodities. Uh, so, so there are um, policies and, and regulations coming through at different parts of the world. But obviously, with changing regimes, as we saw in Brazil, for example, this can stall or even take a, a step backwards. We try through the way that we allocate through our sovereign matrix on the sustainability side, allocate to those governments that are doing the most. So they don't have to be best in class today on absolutely everything, but they're they're moving in the right direction. And then effectively, instead penalizing those governments that are moving in the opposite uh, direction. And we have an opportunity at times to have direct engagements, but it's by no means as easy uh, as it is when you're, you're holding an equity in the market, for example. Oh, absolutely. Um, can you give us some recent examples that you can um, explain where investors have been able to impact the actions of companies to achieve positive results with biodiversity issues? Yeah, that's a good question as well. I, I, I think... In addition to, I guess, the, uh, the, the day-to-day, if I can use that term, of engaging with our companies in general on biodiversity and deforestation and other material issues, there are a couple of cases that I think that have been really quite key over the years in, in terms of sort of like setting the course in a certain direction or being a bit of a milestone. And one that I can think of was a UK oil and gas company going back a couple of years that were um, sort of doing seismic exploration um, around a natural a national park in in the DRC called Virunga National Park, and this received a lot of attention because. Um, a, it's you know WWF and others were were having a campaign about this topic um, at the time and 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 shedding light on the importance of understanding that oil and gas companies are actually in natural world heritage sites or in around them, which is not actually what UNESCO is is. Um, 
endorsing. They're quite clear in saying that that it's not compatible to have extractive industries in these in this area. So it got some attention for that. It also got, I think, uh, attention because it was such a pristine sort of uh, and symbolic, I think, um, biodiversity um, sites. And uh, coupled with the campaigns that the conservation organizations were running, it also created a lot of focus by investors. And I think it was something that brought to the forefront more than it had in the past, this issue in general. Now, the result of the engagement with the company itself, and I think the pressure from some of the NGOs, ultimately resulted in the in the company retreating. Um, and obviously, there were as you can imagine, costs and things incurred from all of this, which wasn't great for the company or for its investors. So I think there was definitely a, a sort of lesson learned there. But what I would say about those cases, and this is where we have to be really mindful as investors of what happens once you've sort of had a positive outcome of your engagement, is that this company left, but it doesn't mean that the issue has been resolved. You know, what is what is there to stop uh, the government of the DRC just giving that site or that concession to a company that is not listed or a company that is completely off the radar, and therefore you are continuing um, you know, the, the risk around this biodiversity side eroding sort of is still there. And there's another risk as well, which is that um, there is a there is the risk that the, the countries just decide that they don't want the natural world heritage status. They will degasset and basically pull away from it. And that's also not the outcome that we want to see. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just about thinking about the potential consequences of what we think are successful engagements at times. And so since that case, no one's gone into the Democratic Republic of the Congo to, to do any more mining at this stage. Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't think there is exploration in this, this particular lake at this point, but I but um, and and I don't have all the latest detail um, of this. But there's certainly no listed company that will go near that site. Um, so so I think that was definitely sort of a a lesson learned. So there, it is very sensitive, right, for companies today to go into what are particularly very. Uh, you know, this site, for example, had all the mountain gorillas. They had so many sort of symbolic things that made this you know, uh, hit the headlines. There was a documentary made about it as well. And there were some celebrities talking about it. Um, and not all it's sort of biodiversity sites are the same. They don't sort of present the same um, sort of conditions, right? No, and I guess when you see animals there, it, get, it gets a little bit more attention as well. Um, exactly. Why do you think um, biodiversity is receiving more interest lately? Also, as I laid out at the start of this conversation, I think the urgency is really getting more attention because um, there is, you know, a real nervousness by governments that unless they are taking a sustainable approach to protecting their natural resources, um, you know, it could have a real impact on their ability to 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 grow their nations, to um, GDP growth, and all of those things. We we do really depend on this and. We have been hitting 
a number of different biophysical tipping points over the last um, couple of decades that haven't been there before. You know, the the planet has been pretty good to us for at least seven decades, right, as if, um, when we've gone through sort of an economic acceleration. And now we're starting to see these changes. And the fact that some of, of this biodiversity loss is irreversible is really quite worrying. So I think governments are genuinely starting to be concerned about this. Obviously, um, the conservation movement has been talking about this for a very long time. Um, and investors, I think, are equally starting to pick up on the fact that they have investments in companies that has to re relocate their supply chain. That's that's complicated. That's expensive. There are companies that are not going to be able to operate in sites um, in the same way that they used to be. And there are fines and regulations that are dealing with these externalities in a way that they haven't before. So I think it's starting to become priced in, or at least the threat of things starting to become priced in from an investment perspective is part of the reason that we're now looking at this. And, and finally, I would also say that the attention to climate change has also brought about this focus on biodiversity because biodiversity is such an important connection to uh, to climate change, both in the way that it can be a, 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 a carbon sink um and 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 also in the way that it can uh, release um, um sort of further carbon emissions so you can't really deal with climate change without also starting to understand biodiversity and to be honest with you julia i mean if we thought that climate change was tricky and complex at least we had a metric we we do have carbon emission equivalent metric that we apply we don't have that for biodiversity and this is why it's slower it's more complex and why we're all going to try and do it well there probably will be a lot of different frameworks and and ways to address this you mentioned earlier in our conversation today the tnfd can you explain that task force and what it does uh, yes, yeah, so we we have just recently joined the the TNFD, so so we are still to sort of learn, you know, about all the things that they work on. But but one of the things that uh, I understand they have been developing is is sort of a, a central framework or it's a, a, a sort of universal central approach of how to think about it and I think um, or how to um, translate biodiversity I should say for investors and uh, it's, it's still quite complex is my take or what I hear from from peers who are involved with it but at least we're getting investors together in a room and trying to kind of share input and ideas and try and at least stay on a similar course because it's never useful to the industry when we're all running in different directions, right, and defining things completely differently. So TNFD, I think, is going to be really important to this. I mean, we'll see if you will take the same course as TCFD. Um, you know, we are some way away from being able to report consistently on this. But of course, the I think the desire and the intention is there um, to try and get to that point soon. And interesting that you bring it up. I mean, how do you know that um, what you're measuring is correct and how can investors be sure with biodiversity that what companies are saying that they're doing is right and not just some sort of greenwashing? <clears throat> 
Yeah, you know, the the risk of companies overstating things and, you know, I think this is a risk for investors as well, overstating, you know, how well they're, they're dealing with these issues. So I, I don't think it's unique to just companies, but it is there. I think you, you have to just be, um, you know, mindful of companies in particular that are really exposed to biodiversity risks, somehow giving an indication that they are on top of everything, right? Um, that can't be the case. That just isn't the case. So I think we get curious and a bit skeptical when it just looks too good uh, that the companies are saying that they have sort of watertight management systems to deal with and reduce all of their uh, externalities. I think that's when we get interested and want to have an engagement. Um, obviously, there is reporting and data and presentations, which all sort of like contributes to the overall picture. Um, and, um, you know, you can always interrogate that. You, you might look for uh, if, if any of that data is is audited, for example. I mean, that's that's really helpful. Um, and then I, I think companies that are open about where they still have challenges is a positive sign. Um, I think being honest and um, about the work still that needs to be done, I think is a good sign of them taking it seriously. You mentioned a little bit earlier, but when it comes to biodiversity, how important is it for investors like Newton to stay engaged with companies even when they're working in dirty areas? And how do you do that? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a really important topic, um, and and I think this sits with me because I've spent a lot uh, a lot of my time in my career focusing on emerging markets, not least in, in my previous role, and the importance of ensuring that you don't leave uh, either emerging markets or industries that are just dirtier, if you like, behind is really really important, and I think it's a a really key component of the sustainable investment philosophy. I, I think historically there's been a lot of focus on, well, a combination of exclusions as well as just purifying portfolios, right? Trying to get rid of everything bad and negative from the portfolio. And that's where you end up with your sustainable investment proposition. And it's just it's just one part of this puzzle, right? I think you still have to do that. You, it's not in your interest to have completely contradictory industries to the objective of the fund, right? But at the same time, it has to be a combination of your solution providers as well as an exposure to those regions and companies that are doing the most. And that does include industries that aren't yet exactly where they need to be. So we have, as I mentioned earlier, this transition lane where we on purpose within under the banner of sustainable investment are investing in companies that are uh, not yet where they need to be on um, uh, on biodiversity for example and engaging with them Julia and engagement is to me the name of the game for the next 10 years easily. Can I just finish, Therese, by just asking you again to go through the five main areas um, that connect to the erosion of biodiversity and just give a, a, a final explanation to people mm. what your focus is? Ab absolutely. And I, I would recommend anyone going to, to the site and have a look at it. So it's the science policy platform on biodiversity and ecosystems services. So like I said, a, quite a mouthful, IPBES. And it's looking at drivers of species loss. And the first one uh, is looking at land and sea use. So there we had 
issues like deforestation, extraction, aquaculture and marine uh, feed, for example, that we can link to different industries. The second one is natural resource use and exploitation. So overconsumption, sustainable agriculture, biomass and biofuels, for example. Uh, thirdly, pollution. Uh, plastics, solid degradation, fertilizers and pesticides. And then finally, uh, sorry, uh, fourth, invasive species. This is a less evolved space. So you won't find that much interpretation of it, but we know it's a driver of species loss. And then fifth, climate change. So obviously already covered by different frameworks in the market like TCFD and Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. So those are the five different areas that can be really quite useful to go to as a lens and a way to interpret biodiversity and the drivers of species loss. Thank you so much, Teresa. It has been a fascinating discussion. Unfortunately, it's a little bit of a depressing you know, discussion as well, hearing you know, what we're losing, but great to know that people like yourself are focused on it and you know, we're going to come out better because of it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here, Julia. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.